name is Justin Jordan. I'm the lead minister here at Real Life, and we want to welcome you if you're new this morning. And uh, before we get into the Habit Sermon Series, I, I do want to talk about my Cowboys. Yes, they disappointed me once again. Uh, 27 years of failure and disappointment. But I'm happy for Joe. I'm happy for Jenny. She's a Niners fan. He's an Eagles fan. And I want you to notice, like, the apparel that Joe's wearing, that's the logo from the early 90s with the Eagles. And so I'm just glad that he can get into his closet from 30 years ago, <laughs> get his stuff out, and wear it during this time of year. I'm, I'm happy for him. I really am happy. I wish that I could wear my stuff to. So um, we're continuing our series on habits. We're actually wrapping up our series on habits today. Next week, we start a new sermon series called uh, Margins and looking at margin in our life in a lot of different areas and just evaluating what God's word has to say about creating margin in our life. And uh, today we're going to be wrapping up habits. And we've been on this journey of, of talking about habits, kind of a big picture idea of habits and realizing that habits are a lot like icebergs. And you guys already know, we've been talking about this every single week. Um, we get the phrase, you know, that's just the tip of the, and the reason why is because uh, icebergs, 80% of their mass is underneath the surface. And what we're realizing, what we're learning in this journey and process is when it comes to the habits that God has for us, um, yes, on the surface, we can look and say, oh, well, that person has this habit. Uh, they read their Bible every day. They, they go to church on Sunday. They go to home group. They serve all these different habits. But the real reality is that our habits are actually rooted in so much more than just doing them. They're actually rooted in a lot of really important things below the surface that really, uh, I guess, would describe why we do what we do. And so we've been through this journey of figuring out why do we do some of the things we do? What are the godly habits that God is calling on you to take hold of this year? And are you willing to look below the surface as to um, what it mean to actually start those habits? And so week one, we talked about uh, all the things that we do is because we fear the Lord, because we want to have reverence and awe towards God and what he's called us to. And step two, when we have reverence and awe towards the Lord, we actually become a child of God. And the Bible talks about how we are rooted, our identity is rooted in him. And when our identity is rooted in him, then it makes sense for us to, to stop certain things, as we talked about, and certain things that we say yes to. Uh, the, the Bible talks about that all the time. Because you are God's child, you need to stop living in a fleshly way and start living by the Spirit. And so then We've been talking last week about what does it mean to start new habits? What are the habits that God wants us to live out in our lives? And so this week we're, we're wrapping up this series of habits and we're talking about results. Everybody say results this morning. Now here's what we know about results uh, is we live in an instant gratification society. Would you agree with that this morning? And we can say thank you to the internet for that. We can say thank you to technology for that. Um, and there's like great things about technology and internet, but one of the downsides is we've lived in a world, we've become to live in a world where if we don't get the results that we want right away, uh, we don't actually see things through. They did a study actually recently where they, they actually asked people how long they expect a web page to load. And 47% said if it does not load within two seconds, one, two. They hit refresh or they go back and find a different web page to go to. I want you to think about that. One, two. I don't get what I want. I'm going to go find it somewhere else. Instant gratification is something that is, 
is really permeating our society and our culture. And it's, it's really um, even playing out last night. I, I went on a date night with my wife last night and we went into the store and we met at the location in separate vehicles. So then we went to the store, we got back, back to our vehicles. Well, I left my cell phone in her car. And so we're driving home and sure enough, it's right in the middle of the blizzard that happened last night. And uh, I realized, like, I need to get some stuff for her at the store, but I couldn't remember the exact tortillas that she wanted. So I'm trying to figure out, like, what should I do? Well, the store is five minutes from our house. So I literally could have just went home, talked to her, and then went back to the store. It would have saved me 10 minutes. I'm like, I don't want to do that. So what did I do? I sped up and I got right next to her. I rolled down my window as my window as we're going down Meridian Road, 55 miles an hour, and I'm like trying to get her attention. She rolls down the window. I go, I left my phone in the car. She goes, I know, I can't see anything. I mean, this is a really safe situation. And I said, what tortillas do you want? The gluten-free ones. Okay, do you want anything else? No, we're going 55 miles an hour screaming at each other. And I got what I needed, rolled into the store. I saved 10 minutes, you guys. 10 minutes. Some of you are judging me right now, and you can judge me. That was a horrible decision as I thought about it later. Like, that is not very wise. There's no one else on the road. It's okay. Um, anyway. So I got the stuff, went in. But I remember as a kid growing up where like, you didn't have to call the person back when they left you a voicemail or a, vo a message on the message machine, right? But now if you don't text back, what's going on? Why aren't you responding back? Instant gratification. Now here's the thing, when it comes to instant gratification, here's what the messaging is that we begin to believe and understand, that waiting is bad. The waiting is bad. And what ends up happening is we take that messaging and then we roll it into our relationship with Jesus. And the message is, if I'm waiting, it's bad. I'm not getting the results that I want. I'm not getting the messaging that I want. It's bad. I want to just open us, our eyes up to maybe looking at some characters in the Bible today, one specifically and two supporting cast characters, about what does it look like to actually stick to habits and actually waiting on what God has for us? What would it look like if we as a people chose to live differently than the rest of the world when it comes to instant gratification? And what impact would that have on our relationship with Jesus? If you got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Daniel chapter 6. And last week we talked about prophet uh, Zechariah and Haggai, and um, uh, we talked about Zerubbabel, Jeshua. These are all people that are bringing God's people out of captivity back to Jerusalem. And they are rebuilding God's temple. And they are rebuilding the, the walls of Jerusalem. And it's this process, this journey of really looking at how God rejoices over the small beginnings when we start something new. And we looked at that last week. We're going to now go back in time. And we're going to go back uh, to about uh, 680 roughly. And it's the time of Daniel while God's people are in captivity. They're in Babylon, and the king is Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody say Nebuchadnezzar. 
King Nebuchadnezzar is king over Babylon, and he has now completely decimated Jerusalem. He has taken the best and the brightest out of Jerusalem. And the reason why he's taken the best and the brightest out of Jerusalem is this is what you did when you took over an area, is you'd grab the best and the brightest, and you would hope to disciple them to actually become advocates for your culture, for your country, for Babylon. And so there's three people but one specifically that we are learning about and that's Daniel who Nebuchadnezzar is actually looking at him and seeing that he is actually smart he's wise uh, he, he looks good in the midst of a lot of different trials and diets that we're going to talk about here in a second um, and, and, and he's actually being used by God in the midst of being in Babylon away from their their hometown of Jerusalem and as this is taking place um, what we're going to find out here is, is the government officials that are around Nebuchadnezzar are actually becoming jealous of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 6, it's this amazing story of, of Daniel and his face faithfulness. In verse 3, it says this, that Daniel distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And so Daniel is actually thriving in um, Babylon and he's doing exactly what Jeremiah told him to do. Jeremiah the prophet told the people, uh, you're not going back to Jerusalem anytime soon. Uh, Take on roots, thrive, and make sure you seek the welfare of the city. And so what is Daniel doing? He's doing that. He's doing well while he's in Babylon. And so much so that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing him and going, I want this guy to have uh, leadership over my entire kingdom. Pretty amazing, right? Well, look at the next passage, verse 4. At this time, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. What are they researching? Let's find some dirt on this guy. Like, what, what kind of leader is he? And, and we don't want him to gain power. We want to gain the power. And so can we find anything? They can't find anything. So what do they do? They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. As we know from Daniel, is that he was a committed man to the Lord, even in the midst of being in Babylon. He was committed to obeying what God had called him to obey in the midst of a, a nation, a world that didn't respect the God of Israel. And so these, these administrators that are jealous, they said, you know what, let's, let's create a law that says that we have to pray to only one God, and the one God is King Nebuchadnezzar. We're just going to pray. It's the only person you can pray to. Well, does Daniel follow along in that? No. He says, I'm not going to do that. I refuse to pray to anybody except for my God. He refuses. Kindly, but respectfully. And so sure enough, they take him. And, uh, well, actually, before they take him, this is an important part. Verse 10. Look at what it says here. As soon as Daniel found out about this new law, it says in verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. I love that. He looks back to the windows towards Jerusalem. Why? Because he remembers where he's come from. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. What's it say? Just as he had done. What's it say? Just as he had done. 
This is a man of God who is ripped out of Jerusalem, sent to Babylon, is rising up within the government. It says that every single day, three times a day, he's praying. Eventually, we're going back. We're going back. And Daniel is this amazing uh, picture of, of really the opposite of instant gratification, society, and culture. Do they want to go back? Absolutely they wanted to go back. But Daniel knew they weren't. And he chose to obey God even in Babylon. Every single day he prayed three times a day. What does this tell us? That God uses people who consistently do what other people occasionally do. God uses people who consistently do what other people occasionally do. Why did Daniel pray? Well, I think it's helping him remember where, they're, where they came from and where they're eventually going to get to. But I just want to recap how amazing this fits into what we've been talking about. We've been talking about through the last couple of weeks. Daniel prayed three times a day. He started that habit. But I want you to also realize this pyramid or this iceberg. Iceberg piece, step three. Daniel refused to allow Babylon to disciple him. Do you know the story? They, they, they allowed dietary restrictions, said, said, Daniel, we want you to eat these things. And whoever is, is the greatest among all of your people, they will be set aside as, as to be used by the government. And Daniel goes, I can't eat those things because I'm, I'm Jewish. Give me some vegetables and some water. And I trust God that whatever comes on the other side of it, so be it. Now, the passage goes on to describe that at the end of the day, like Daniel actually looked like he like buffed up on a vegetarian diet, which I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that. I've never experienced that. <laughs> what is this saying? This isn't about some diet that Daniel did. This is about a testimony of what God is doing to show him favor in the midst of his obedience. I'm not gonna do that. Babylon, and I'm not going to pray to any other God except for the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. He's actually living out the habits that he wants, that God wants us to live by consistently. Not only that, why does, why does Daniel do that? Because he understands he's a child of God, and he ultimately understands that there's only one person to fear, God. Praying three times a day, just a habit, but is it? You start diving deep. It strikes to the very core of who he is and what he's called to live out as a follower of God. If you know the rest of the story, King recognizes Daniel broke the law and reluctantly, uh, in a saddened state, chooses to throw Daniel into a lion's den. And if you know, Daniel spends all night in the lion's den. In verse 18, it says this. The king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him. He could not sleep. Why? Because he loved Daniel. He loved Daniel. And he was saddened that Daniel's going to die. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God has sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you. 
your majesty. Another testimony to Daniel's faithfulness to his God and God uses this small habit of obedience, a prayer, small, (laughs) that has huge implications of him actually losing his life. God used him. And I just want to encourage you to remember this, that never underestimate how God can do something big through one small habit. All Daniel did was say yes to God, pray three times a day, stay obedient, and God was able to use him and bless him. One small habit of obedience. Does it have implications for his life? Absolutely. But that one small habit, that one willingness to say, I'm going to continue to walk in obedience to what God has for me. I'm going to keep doing it. Even though you may not get the results that you want to see right away. Daniel didn't. He kept walking obediently. What about you? What is the thing that that Jesus is calling on you to start? That one small habit he's calling you to stick to, even though you're not getting what you want right away. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, a long obedience in the same direction. What is the long obedience in the same direction that God has been calling on you to take that no matter what the cost is, you're willing to continue to live it out? I'll just celebrate one thing for you, for, um, from my life that I shared with you in regards to right after Christmas Eve. I shared with you that I got a family member that I've been praying for for 18 years to come to church. They came to church for the first time on Christmas Eve. And they were moved. They, they're still trying to figure out why they were moved. <laughs> Not used to going to church. Haven't been to church for years. And I reached out to him. I said, hey, Beast Feast is coming up. Do you want to come? And he's like, yes, I want to come. I want to bring my son, my cousin. What am I doing? I've been praying for my uncle for years. Do I know what the result's going to be? No. But I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep loving. I'm going to keep leading because that's what Jesus called us to be. A people that stay obedient no matter the cost, no matter the result. Now, with that being said, I just want to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail this morning. You want to go down the rabbit trail with me? Here's the question. You might be saying, Justin, Daniel's got a good story to, to end the story. God rescued him. Does that mean that God always gives us what we want when we are faithful with our habits, even for a really, really long time? The answer to that is no. The answer to that is no. The first question you might be asking was why? And it's the question we wrestle with a lot as human beings is why does God allow suffering to happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering to happen to good people? There's lots of different whys to that. The scripture kind of talks about. It may be a warning for us to understand that if we're not willing to continue to trust God, even though we are being trusting God, that if, if we're not smart and continue to trust God, there may be a real reality that it's a warning of, to avoid future sin. It may be used to build character in you as a person. Pain can cause growth in a person. Ultimately, though, really? That answer of why? It's left unanswered. It's left unanswered. But here's what I want to encourage you with this morning in the midst of that. 
is there's two characters that we look at. The first one is, is Job. Ever say Job this morning? Say Job this morning. Job. There we go. So my son is in the midst of reading through Job right now. He's been reading through the entire Bible for about two years now, and he's gotten to Job. I thought we were going to read the whole Bible in a year. And well, he's only 10, 11, now 12 years old. So my standard was a little high. As I remembered, it took me even a little longer than a year to read the whole Bible, let alone my 10-year-old son. And he's in Job. And we've been kind of journeying and talking about Job because he's, he's struggling with it. Any of you guys ever read Job? It's a struggle, isn't it? And he's struggling with it on two reasons. Number one, he finds it a little bit boring because all it is is speech after speech after speech. And the second one is he's like, man, it's really depressing. It's really depressing. And I said, that's true. It is depressing. But we spent some time this week looking at a video called the Bible Project video, the book of Job. And the Bible Project does a great job of talking about the heart response that we have of following God and not getting rewarded and what God actually honors in our response to God when we don't get what we want, when we don't want justice, when we, we want the things that God would do to bring justice, we don't get to experience that. What kind of process does God actually love? And this is what it described. I love this. God loves it, and he honors when we don't have hasty conclusions about how the world operates. Every single one of us in here, we want to experience justice, right? We do the habits that we know that God calls us to do, but we want to see justice on the other end of those things. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And sometimes we move into a place where we're going, God, if you were a just God, you would have done something by now. Ever experienced that before? And what God loves is when we are not quick to judge him, we are not quick to judge the world, that we are willing to actually have a conversation with God. God loves it that when we actually begin to process with him that we're actually struggling. You ever think about that? God loves it when you struggle with him, that you process with him, that you would ask him, God, aren't you a just God? God loves it when we come to him in prayer and honesty to say, I'm hurting God. I don't know if I can trust you, God. But ultimately, God loves it and he honors the process when we come to a place of humility. When we come to understand that God's world is good, but it's not always safe. When we come to understand that God's world is complex and it's not designed to prevent suffering. God is honored by our response when we understand that we don't have sufficient knowledge to understand the complexity of evil and suffering. Why? Because we're human and we're not God. We're human and we're not God. When we live in a posture of humility, confession, repentance, and an invitation to trust God's wisdom in the midst of following through on the habits that God's calling us to do, and we don't get the results that we want, God says, would you still be willing to trust me even though you don't get what you want right now? To bring our pain to God, to trust him with it, that God actually knows what he is doing. And this reminds me, as I look at Job and I look at what God calls us to be as people that follow through on the habits he's called us to, even though we don't get the results that we want, it reminds me of so much of how I interact with my children. Some of you guys have got not just toddlers, you've got elementary age, 
age kids, and they'll come and they will ask you questions and you're like, where did that question come from? And sometimes they ask me a question that is actually beyond their capacity to even understand and for me to explain in a good way. Have you ever explained that? Had that happen as a parent? And I sit there and go, how do I answer this question? And then I think the Lord enters in. Maybe it's just an easy scapegoat answer, but he enters in and he just says, Justin, they don't need to know the answer to that question right now. And I look at my daughter and I look at my sons and I say, I'll be able to explain that to you eventually one of these days. But right now, I just need you to trust me that the answer I'm giving you is sufficient. Why? Ever get that? But why? But why? I just need you to trust me. And that's how it is with God. Is we have to come to a place where God says, because that's how it is right now. But there will come a day when we get to see him face to face in all of his glory. And there will come a day where as we see him face to face, our eyes will be open to the real reality of what God's been doing all along, all behind the scenes. And we'll go, oh, that makes sense now. But in this time, we have to just say, I don't understand. I don't know, Lord. But in humility, I'm going to trust you. One other character, John the Baptist. Everybody say John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one that came before Jesus and prepared the way for Jesus to come. And as he's out in the desert preaching the good news of the kingdom, he's telling people, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And sure enough, Jesus comes and John the Baptist, Baptist baptizes Jesus. And, and, and John the Baptist is like, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. And he says, no, this is what you're called to do. John the Baptist lays the runway for us to experience Messiah Jesus. We're going to be talking and going through a series of John the Baptist right before Easter. John the Baptist made disciples and eventually said, you need to start following Jesus and sent all of his disciples to Jesus. John the Baptist gets arrested. And not only does he get arrested, he gets thrown in prison and he's got a death sentence on his head. Now, in the process of this, in this, in this story, uh, he actually grabs some of his disciples and says, I don't know if Jesus really is the Messiah. Can you go and ask him who he actually is? Is he actually the Messiah? And why is he questioning this? Well, he's questioning this because, I don't know about you, but I don't think John the Baptist figured he was going to end up in jail. And he sure as heck wasn't thinking, I'm going to eventually die. The Messiah is going to come and we're going to rule and reign, kick butt and take names, Right? That's what John the Baptist is thinking. Jesus, what am I doing in prison? I did all the things that you wanted me to do. I stuck to the habits. I did the things that the scripture said. And I'm in prison. So he sends disciples to Jesus. Who was in prison and heard about all the things. Matthew chapter 11 verse 2. Heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we come looking for someone else? Are you, are, are you the guy? I mean, I baptized you. And I saw like the heavens open up and God spoke over you. But like, are you the guy? Because I'm in prison. 
And Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, and those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Now here's the crazy thing. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 35 and 61, 35, 5. When he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. You heard Jesus say that, right? Isaiah 61, the sovereign spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted. This last part, to proclaim that the captives would be released. Did Jesus say that part? To John the Baptist? He didn't. This is Jesus' way of saying, I am who you think I am. I am the Messiah. But John the Baptist, you're not going to be released from prison. You're not going to be released from prison. What did Jesus think of John the Baptist? Later on in verse 11, after he finds out that John the Baptist is killed, he says, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the time of John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. What is this a story of? Story of Daniel? Story of Job? Story of John the Baptist? Are stories of people that are committed to God and doing the things that he's called us to do no matter what the result is. And sometimes the result is good, Daniel. Sometimes it's not. But what will your story be like? What will your story be like? Will you be a disciple who's committed to the habits of Jesus and what he calls you to no matter what the result is? Or the cost is. Some of these people, they were not perfect, but some of them chose to continue to follow and trust Jesus no, at no matter the cost, no matter what the result is. To stick to the habits, to stick to the things that God would want us to stick to, no matter what the result is. The question is, is that what you are going to be defined by? As someone who's committed no matter the cost, no matter the result. Step number five in this journey of this sermon series is a commitment no matter the cost. Commitment no matter the cost, no matter the result. Because at the end of the day, our lives are meant to be a life where we continue to walk in obedience and bring glory to Jesus, whether we get the result that we want or we don't. The reality of this is for us, it means walking like Jesus did. Jesus walked perfectly and ended up on a cross for you and I. And so for us as his, as his followers, we've got to ask ourselves, are we willing to walk the way he walked? That we're going to walk the right way regardless of the result, no matter the cost. And that we would be a people that walk with Jesus no matter the cost. That we would get up and we would pray and we would seek his word every day. Even in moments where there's seasons where it doesn't feel like God's speaking. Like you can't hear him. What's he saying? I mean, it's, it's a desert. It's dry. But we're going to continue to seek after him. You're going to continue to seek after him over and over and over. Knowing 
that life is coming? What about when it comes to your wife, your husband? Are you committed to seeking after your husband, your wife, loving, leading, sacrificing, no matter what they do? What does it look like to start habits within your marriage where you say, this is what we do, it's a non-negotiable. Dating my spouse is a non-negotiable. Checking in with my spouse is a non-negotiable. Well, they don't, they don't want to have that conversation. That's fine. Are you committed to continue to seek after your spouse regardless? Habits with your kids. No matter the results, whether they want to talk about spiritual things or not, are you willing to continue to seek after your children, to point them in the way of the Lord, no matter the result, no matter the cost? Habits when it comes to being connected to a home group, to church. There's only three people that keep showing up on Tuesday night in my home group. Are you committed to one another? Over and over and over again, no matter the result, no matter the the cost, no matter what it looks like, a commitment to say this is a non-negotiable. We're going to meet together because the scripture tells us to. What if we lived like Daniel? What if we lived like Job and cried out to God in the midst of trusting him and not seeing the result that we want to see? What if we accepted our fate like John the Baptist, never wavered from the claim of believing in Jesus, even in the midst of doubts? Jesus, are you who you say you are? And trusting him even to the point of death. I'm guessing that John the Baptist, if he wanted to be released from prison, he probably only had to do one thing. Tell the government, I don't believe in any of this anymore. And I reject all that I've been preaching about. And there is only one king. And it's not Jesus. But he didn't do that. He chose to continue to follow, no matter the cost. As we get ready for communion today, I just have one question for you as we prepare a meal with Jesus. What do you need to trust Jesus with, no matter the cost? What does that look like for you? If you've come this morning and you want to take communion, we've got Andrew and his amazing son that would love to serve you the elements. If you didn't grab the elements as you came in, just raise your hand and he'll take care of you. They'll take care of you. All the elements are, if you're new and you want to have this meal with Jesus, it's just a piece of cracker that represents Jesus' body. A cup of juice represents his blood. Go ahead and keep your hands raised if you still need the elements. What I want to invite you into this morning is that question, is what is the thing that the Lord is asking you to uh, entrust to him? The habit he's calling on you to live out, no matter the cost, no matter the result. And what would it look like for you to start living a life committed to him? Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's starting a relationship with Jesus. It's deciding I'm going to surrender my life to him. I'm going to believe and I'm going to confess that he is Lord. I'm going to repent. I'm going to be baptized into him. For some of you, it might be a relationship with your family member. 
a son or a daughter, your spouse. Whoever it is that the Lord is calling on you to pray or whether it's your own walk with Jesus, I just want you to spend time with Jesus this morning as we get ready to have a meal with him and spend some time with him.